Everybody survived the first uh, week back into school, not week really, but first two days, teachers and, and uh, faculty and all that, and students as well. I don't know, you know, we've, we've got an eighth grader and a fourth grader, so on Thursday night, uh, we didn't even have to tell them to go to bed. They were just wiped. Uh, they, they went to bed. I don't know if that's what happened at your house, but uh, it's what happened at the Hurchin house. And um, this, this last week was a good week. I, I like when school gets back into session. For me, it kind of just thinks back into regular routine and, and uh, the kids kind of get out and, and get to play with other people and, and not pick on each other as much, at least at the Hurchin house. And um, Some of y'all went to open house this week, right? Yes. Uh, Tuesday night was our open house. We had uh, Ethan at eighth grade open house. Abby had fourth grade open house, and and so Abby's was five to seven, and Ethan's was six to eight, and uh, it kind of made like a little juggling act because Jamie was she's you know she's a third grade teacher, so she was stuck uh, at the school during open house. So we had to get from one to the other, and then get the kids fed and all that. And so in all that midst of Jamie being locked up, I sent Stephanie a text. Right, Stephanie. Um, I asked Stephanie if she could maybe help us out a little bit and, and asked her, hey, uh, do you think Jamie can hitch a ride with you back from open house? And part of that is because just trying to get the kids fed and, and everything, you know, at home. And, and she said yes, uh, she would, uh, which was great news because that meant I didn't have to drive back over uh, to the school. And so we had eaten, we had kind of watched some shows. The kids were going upstairs and doing some reading, kind of wind down their brain. And uh, about 8.30, uh, see the car lights pull into the driveway here, door shut. Jamie walks across the porch and comes in the house and, and asks her how her night went, if it was great, if the parents were good. And, and then I asked her, well, how's Stephanie? And she looked at me very confused. And she said, Stephanie? I said, yeah, didn't Stephanie give you a ride home? And she said, no. Um, she said she came out of her room, Jamie came out of her room, and all the hall lights were, were dark. Uh, it was just pitch black. Everything was locked up. Uh, matter of fact, she caught a ride from another third grade teacher who just happened to come back because she forgot something. And so in that moment, I felt the need to text Stephanie um, because, you know, I'm sorry, but... I, <laughs> This isn't the first time she's left Jamie at school unprotected with no security team whatsoever. And so I uh, text Stephanie and I said, hey, have you seen my wife? As I'm looking at Jamie at this moment and uh, as I sent that, I'm just picturing Stephanie's face just, you know, lighting up, her stomach just dropping and just like feeling overwhelmed with guilt. So I immediately started texting the next one saying, just kidding, she's home and all that. But I guess in your world, you were going through crazy panic and all that. Uh, I, I bring that up not to pick on Stephanie or anything like that, but I, I, this really helps us understand what I perceive the Israelites are going through as we come into Joshua chapter 7. That moment of just being like the air taken out of your lungs, your heart dropping, your stomach turning, just being overwhelmed with a sense of something is going into panic mode and something is wrong. Uh, I believe that is what Israel is experiencing in, in Joshua 7, if you want to make your way there. Uh, last week, we looked at the events of Jericho and this uh, event that the walls came tumbling down as the people shouted. I imagine the Canaanites are seeing Israel now as this impossible foe to take on. I mean, they crossed over the Jordan River on dry ground. They shouted the walls of Jericho to the ground, and now they're setting up base and they're ready to continue the conquest 
But as we come into chapter 7, we come into a hiccup into the promised land. And it kind of is that moment that we're all going to get to experience here in a second. But to start chapter 7, we really have to begin in verse 27 of chapter 6. And we'll read through this and then we'll walk through it together this morning. So the Lord was with Joshua and his fame was in all the land. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things for Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. And Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth Haven, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai, and they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack I. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about three thousand men went up there from from the people, and they fled before the men of I. And the men of I killed about thirty-six of their men, chased them before the gate as far as Shabiram, and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. That means the hearts of Israel. And then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening. And he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all? To give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? With that we have been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? Verse 10, And the Lord said to Joshua, Get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned, and they have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them, and they have taken some of the devoted things they have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up. Consecrate the people and say, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, and for thus says the Lord God of Israel. There are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes, and the tribe of the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans, and the, the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households, and the household that the Lord takes shall come near, by, near man by man. And he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord, and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. Verse 16, So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel before near tribe by tribe, and the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought near the clans of Judah, and the clan of the Zerahites was taken. And he brought near the clan of the Zerahites, man by man, and Zabdi was taken. And he brought near his household, man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, was taken. Of the son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to God of Israel, and give praise to him. And tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak of Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them, and see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. 
So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent. Behold, it was hidden in, in his tent with their silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel, and they laid them down before the Lord. And Joshua said, and, all, and Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold, and his sons and his daughters and his oxen and his donkeys and his sheep and his tent and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Akar. Verse 25, And Joshua said, Why did you bring this trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. <clears throat> and all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned him with fire and stoned him with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Akar. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you, Lord, that you are resurrecting us. You are the victory. You are the King of kings, the Prince of peace, the Lord of lords, the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. You know our hearts, they lay before you. You know the things that we are treasuring up that is not of you. Father, I ask in this moment, this time, that you would bless us with your mercy and your grace, that your spirit would speak to us in a way that only you can. Father, the words that come in my mouth would be pleasing to you, that the meditations of my heart would be pleasing to you. And Lord, that you would rally your people in this moment, that we would have the same desire. We come here seeking after you, seeking after your wisdom, your discernment, your understanding, not another man's. So Father, have your way with us. Let us be in this time to be in your presence. Allow your, your word to begin to open up for us to see things we've never seen and to understand things we've never understood. Father, thank you for everyone who's here this morning. <clears throat> I thank you that you know exactly what they're going through, the things they're struggling with, the things they're praising you about. I thank you for what you're doing in each and every one of our lives. We come before you as your people and the promise of your word that you are in our presence and that we are in yours in the throne room of grace. We submit ourselves to you and ask your, your word to get to the innermost parts of our being that we can be transformed more into righteousness and holiness and be pleasing to you. Forgive us if we failed you in any way as we've worshipped you through song. If it's not been in spirit and truth, Lord, we... We beg for your mercy and your grace. Forgive us if we've belittled your holiness and your worthiness. But let us not do that as we study your word. Let us love you now with our heart, soul, mind, and strength so we can love the people you place in our life. But I pray that you alone would be glorified here, that your kingdom and your will be done in each and every life. And pray us all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. <clears throat> So we're going to walk through this text. We're going to spend actually quite a bit of time in verse 1 this morning. Um, as we begin, I really want us to begin... I got a little scratch in my throat, so forgive me. I want to begin by us all making a commitment together. So here's the commitment. Uh, I, I want you to commit out loud by saying, I will be mature about this. Okay. So we're going to say it together, I will be mature about this. You ready? I will be mature about this. Okay, now, wives, <clears throat> I need you to look at your husbands or your male friends, and I need you to elbow them in the side 
snap your finger in front of their face. Maybe you need to grab their cheeks and make eye contact because husbands, we are kind of, you know, some of y'all did that. I could tell you just moved your lips. You were just saying watermelon over and over again. So you need, wives, make sure you're holding your husband accountable in this moment. I will be mature about this. Accountability is something that's going to play a part this morning as we did through our text. But if we don't start with this idea of being mature about this, then we're going to just lose all sight of what's going to happen as we walk through this. In the English vocabulary, there is a very powerful three-letter word that is the bearer of good and bad news. Because last week, we once again at the Hirchin household were experiencing, experiencing car troubles. And so the car wouldn't start. Matter of fact, it got to the point where I couldn't even get the key out of the ignition. And so we got it over to the car place. And by the time they got to look at it and check it all out, I did the phone call, which is that phone call I, I was not looking forward to. I was imagining the worst of worst could happen. If you go there yourself, then you know what I'm talking about. I mean, it's going to be like $3 billion to fix this thing. It's not going to be worth it anymore. And so they call me up. They say, look, we have found the problem. It's with the battery. But... We put the battery in, and it's still under warranty, so we'll just swap it out, and we'll be good to go. That's the three-letter word, but. It can bring good news, and it can bring bad news. For us, at that moment, that, that was a good but, right? I mean, good but. We like good buts. We don't like bad buts. Bad buts are when doctors start talking to you and say, you have a good bill of health, but. And you just wish they would have stopped right then, but then they bring that but into the equation. The Bible, again, we're being mature for a moment, okay? The Bible is full of good and bad buts, okay? B-U-T-S. Let's not misinterpret this for a second, okay? Romans 6.23 is a good but. For the wages of sin is death, but, that's a good but, but the gift of God is eternal life in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you read through Paul's writings in the New Testament, You'll see, and don't misinterpret this, that Paul is a butt guy, okay? Paul uses butts to, to take these line of thoughts into a good thing or a bad situation, so he has good and bad butts. In Joshua chapter 7, the reason we're dealing with butts is because Israel, in chapter 7, is having a bad butt day. Chapter 6, verse 27, the Lord was with Joshua and his fame was in all the land. Chapter 7 begins with what? But. Here's the thing. All of us have bad butt days. Maybe that's something you can tell your, your spouse as they come home from a long day of work. You can look at them and biblically speak over them. It looks like you're having a bad butt day, sweetie. Okay, that is not misinterpreting Scripture. It only is misinterpreting Scripture if you're calling your spouse a bad butt with an extra T. That's adding to Scripture, which is not what we're doing. Your spouse may be a bad butt. They may be having a bad butt, but that's a different text at a different time. Israel is having a bad butt day. The fame was in all the land, but this puts a screeching halt to what we're going through in Joshua in the conquest of the promised land. We have to talk about this butt issue. In verse, seven of chapter, in verse 1 of chapter 7, this is information in verse 1 that we are given as the reader that Joshua, at this point in time, is not aware of. Now, we're not sure who wrote 
Joshua. Some give Joshua the credit, but I don't believe that is so, but since Joshua is talking about in the third person, along with these sort of inserts that someone came and put in there to give us insight on what is going on within the camp of Israel and the leader of Joshua. And so someone, led by the Holy Spirit, put verse 1 in so we know why what is going to happen happens and the way it plays out the way it does. It says, but the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. This is the issue. Then it goes on and said, And the Lord, the anger of the Lord, burned against the people of Israel. This is the result. So let's unwrap this. This is the very first time in the book of Joshua to which the Lord is angry with the people of Israel. And though we know, as we've read through chapter 7, the culprit is a man by the name of Achan, or Achan the consequence fell upon all of Israel. Verse 1 says, Israel broke faith, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. And so we read this, and if we put ourselves in that situation, here's what it, it, it would make us feel. That's not fair. That one man's action brought the entire judgment of the Lord upon the whole nation, but, here it is, this is how God views us as the church. He views us as a whole. We are one body. Paul uses this analogy in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He says, If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. It doesn't matter if we look at this passage of Scripture and we think about the church as a whole and God bringing judgment upon the church because of one man's action is unfair. That doesn't matter because here's the thing. We don't get to make the rules. God does. And as one group, Israel was called to one covenant with the one true God. And when one person broke that covenant, the whole nation of Israel was held accountable. The lesson from chapter 7 is not about fairness, but the lesson is about the holy standards God has called his people to. It's an understanding we need to have of God that our sinful choices have consequences before a holy God. Robert Hess wrote, As long as rebellion against God's will is tolerated, there can be no success. It is necessary to eradicate sin in order to grow in one's relationship with God and to reveal His full blessing. The issue, Israel broke faith in regard to devoted things. The devoted things, if you go back into chapter 6, you can read of those in verses 18 and 19. The command was Jericho to be completely destroyed, except for those things that were devoted to the Lord to go into the treasure of the Lord because they were holy to the Lord. In other words, that means that they belong to God. But we read in verse 1 that Israel broke faith. That phrase there in verse 1 is typically used of a marital vow being broken in the act of adultery. The nation of Israel in chapter 7 has been declared guilty by God because they have taken what belonged to Him. They stole it. And though we know it was only one man's action, God brings the accountability of the whole nation under His judgment. The wrongdoer is Achan. Achan is the opposing role of Rahab of chapter 2. And we talked about this several months ago. What tribe did Achan come from? It's there in verse 1. Judah. If you go to Matthew and you get the genealogy of Jesus, Jesus is to come from what tribe? Judah. Well, Achan, by the end of chapter 7, is devoted to destruction by his act of coveting. We'll talk about that in a second. 
But if you go to Matthew 1, you see the genealogy of Jesus. You see Achan is not in there, but now Rahab is in there. She gets married into the tribe of Judah, and she becomes a part of the chronological line of Jesus Christ, part of his family tree. And so this consequence of sin not only played out in, Achan, in Achan's life right here, but it played on down his line. Achan's disobedience led to an incredible punishment. By Rahab's obedience and submission to God, it led to an incredible blessing. Here's the issue. Sin has consequences. Verse 1 sets up the remainder of chapter to understand why things happened the way they did. Yet with that, that knowledge, again, Joshua doesn't know this. And so without that knowledge, in verse 2, Joshua sends spies to check out I. He used the same strategy he did with Jericho. In verse 3, the spies come back and deliver a favorable report. By the spies' perception, I is a very weak city. And so they tell Joshua, here's what we should do. We shouldn't send the whole army up there because all the people would toil up there. Now, that word toil there in the Hebrew is only used another time in the Old Testament. There's other words for toil and, and things like that. But this particular word is only used one other time, and that's in Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verse 15. And that verse refers to an individual who lacks all the fundamental information to take an appropriate action. So what the writer of Joshua does is he does a Hebrew play on words. He's showing what Joshua does not know and having all the appropriate information to take an appropriate action. And so instead of this perception that they will toil, what in fact happens is the camp of Israel now toils because of Joshua's lack of information. And so he goes off the spies report, which we know that's bad information. We know this. Joshua doesn't, but Joshua acts on the advice. But notice there is no divine intervention. There is no advice that Joshua seeks after with the Lord. Joshua just makes the call. And I read this and I think perhaps pride was playing an issue as his fame is spreading. And what happened at Jericho? If you jump in chapter 8 of Joshua and verse 25, we're told that there were 12,000 people in Ai. Yet the report of the spies and the advice of the spies is that we should only send about two to 3,000. So Joshua sends 3,000. Now that doesn't seem adequate to me. But again, Joshua doesn't have the whole story. He doesn't have all the information. And so verse 4 and 5 deliver the bad news, which we know is coming. Israel meets defeat. And with the defeat... Their hearts have now taken the place of the people who live in Canaan. It says, the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Whatever momentum had been gained at Jericho has now been destroyed through this devastating news of defeat. It's like that moment that Stephanie probably had when I sent her that text about Jamie. At this point in time, Joshua and the spies, they cannot see clearly. And here's the thing, sin has consequences. And one immediate consequence of sin is it doesn't allow us to see things clearly. It blinds us. For Joshua and Israel, all they could see was the fear in front of them and the chaos that began to ensue. This is captured in Joshua's prayers in verses 6 through 9. Again, we have to remember in Joshua's prayers, he does not understand what is happening. And his lack of understanding, what does he do? He turns on God. He blames God. Here's a man that has been commissioned, 
commanded and spoken over by God to lead his people. And when he can't find someone or something to blame, what he does is what we all do is he points the finger at God. His prayer echoes the cries of the Israelites as they came to the wilderness. Why God? Why did you bring us across this river? Why did you bring us to this place? Why are you doing what you're doing? Joshua fully blames the defeat at Ai on God because he doesn't see the whole picture. He doesn't know everything that's going on, just like we can. How many of us have blamed God when we get blindsided by life? When we go through something that is unexpected? Joshua in his prayer, you know, he blames God. He questions God and he doubts God. Joshua has done what we're all tempted to do. We don't have the whole story in our limited understanding, in our limitations of what we can do in that moment. We point the finger at God. Joshua believes the defeated eye is not his fault or the Israel's fault, but his belief is that God in this moment, has become unfaithful. This is our sin issue. Our sinful nature will always want to blame somebody else. It's the government. It's our neighbors. It's our dogs. It's our parents. It's God. If you look back in Genesis, you see this is the story of sin from the very beginning. God blessed Adam with Eve. But when sin came in, who was the first person that Adam blamed? It's that woman you gave me. And who did Eve blame? It was that serpent that you created. What sin does is it wants us to cast blame on somebody else. It's always someone else's fault. Sin attempts to let us off the hook for our own sinful actions when we can't figure out who will point the finger at God. In a very short time here in Joshua chapter 6 to 7, God has gone from receiving glory to being blamed for His glory. And this is why Joshua can only see the chaos that sin created. But through this event, Joshua is going to learn something. He's going to learn about the sovereignty of God. In the midst of this, if you look in verse 6, verse 6 we find Joshua tearing his clothes and he fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening. In chapter 6, the ark of the Lord is the central figure of all the activity that happened at Jericho. In chapter 7, this is the first and only time the ark is mentioned. And it's when Joshua's world is falling apart. It is then he turns to God. And he cries out, but he doesn't know the whole story, so God has to step in to reveal what Joshua doesn't understand. Beginning in verse 10 there in chapter 7. The Lord said to Joshua, get up. I, th I think that's how it probably sounded. Get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. He's telling Joshua, this is what's going on. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things... They have stolen and lied and put them in their own belongings, and therefore the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies, meaning they run, they cower, they go in fear, because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. 
So Joshua is having this pity party. I mean, that's what he's having. He's having a pity party that he lifts up in prayer. Why God? Why me? Why is this happening? Why aren't you being faithful? Do you, do you not love me anymore? Do you not love us anymore? Why did you even bring us to this situation, God? And God comes to Joshua, and he, doesn't, he comes as a, as a loving Heavenly Father, much like parents do when their kids are throwing a tantrum in a store. Stop it! Knock it off! Because Joshua's prayer, his crying out, his pointing of blame, his doubting God, his questioning God, is not appropriate for the action of what is actually going on. See, Joshua doesn't have the whole story. He is like us in our limited knowledge and limited understanding is we don't have the whole picture, but God comes in his sovereignty, which is the title Lord God there in verse 7, another title that is used later in the chapter. Lord God means sovereign God, the God who is over all things, the God who knows all things, can do all things. He comes to Joshua and brings him back to his sense and says, look, this is what's actually happening. See, my holiness is not what's to blame. It is Israel's holiness. My faithfulness is not what's to blame. It is Israel's unfaithfulness. Get up and let's take care of this. See, God steps in and does what only God can do in this moment. God is the only one who can remedy sin. He's the only one that knows the plan. He's the only one that can take care of it. And so God has to step in and fix Israel's sin problem. But if you notice, even though God is sovereign, even though he knows all things, what does God not do? He does not come to Joshua, the leader, and say, you need to go deal with that man Achan. Instead, God puts out this lot system. You're going to call each tribe before you, then each clan before you, and then each family, and then each household, and then you're going to call the man that has done the deed. Why does God do this if he knows all things? Because God wants Israel to understand the consequence of sin and how it has begun to corrupt the whole camp. And we look at this and say, well, that's not fair that one man's sin impacts everything, but that's exactly what it did. Israel went from a, a camp and a nation of people that were feeling confident in the victory they'd just been given, and now there are people in fear. Joshua was a man who's commissioned, promised to go and lead God's people and God's presence be with him, but where's he is because of Achan's sin? He begins to question God. He begins to doubt God. God, aren't you going to be faithful to your promises? See, sin impacts not just us individually, but us corporately. And so the lot system goes cast, and Achan gets brought forward. And in verse 20, Achan confesses, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. And we would expect God, in His grace and His mercy, to say, I accept your confession, and I give you your forgiveness. But despite his confession, Achan still meets destruction. And we say, that doesn't seem fair. But Achan, he doesn't come clean until he's caught. Catch that? He doesn't come clean until he's caught. Achan's fully aware of the defeat that happened at Ai, and Achan's fully aware of what he's hiding in his tent. He's fully aware of God's command. But he doesn't come out and confess it until he absolutely has to. This is a perfect representation of people who live without Christ today. That they put God off. They put God off until it is too late and God's judgment comes upon them. Why did Achan steal? Why did he hide? 
Well, parents, why do your kids hide things that they shouldn't have? Because they know better, right? Our kids hide things from us because they know they shouldn't do that. They shouldn't have those things. They shouldn't have said that thing. So they try to hide it. They try to get away with it. Achan was fully aware, he was fully convicted that what he was doing was wrong, and so that's why he had to hide it. And he stole. The word coveted there is, means he stole from God. It was a direct violation of God's command. To covet something is to desire something someone else has when you have no right to possess it. Achan coveted what God would belong to God, and then he stole it. And then he lied. That's three strikes. He broke three commandments all in that one act. And the ultimate issue Achan, Achan had is he did not trust God. God spoke from the beginning of his conquest, I am gifting the land to you. I'm giving it to you. And Achan began to see that begin to unfold with Jericho. God said, I am gifting the city of Jericho to you. And Achan had witnessed that. But what sin does and our sinful nature does is what lived out here in Achan. Is Achan wanted and he felt entitled to more. He felt, despite God's blessings, despite God's promises coming true in his life, that God was still holding back. So God renders his judgment. And after Joshua finally seeks after the Lord, and he's finally given the whole story, Achan meets the demise of Jericho. But what can we take fully from this passage? I mean, there's so much to dive into. One thing I've hit on over and over and over again is we have to remember that we cannot see the whole picture. We have a very limited perspective in our life. We can't see the whole story playing out. We can't understand all the whys and the hows. Under lack of information, Israel crumbles in fear instead of lives in faith. And Joshua seemed to forget everything that God had spoken over him in chapter 1. This is all because sin plagued the camp. And we are all plagued with the sinful nature. And being plagued with the sinful nature, we fail to remember the command and the promises of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the Bible says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, and then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So no matter what we go through in life, here's the conviction we have to have, is that God knows the whole story. God knows what to do when we do not, and God understands what we cannot understand. And so we have to have this conviction that our God is not erratic, but He is sovereign. That's the title Lord God used in chapter 7. That He has a plan, even if it's not according to our plan. And so this is our test of obedience. Here's what obedience boils down to when it comes to being obedient to the commands of God. Obedience is this. God knows more than I do. God understands more than I do. God's ways are far beyond my own ways. And so I am obedient to God because that's who He is and I understand who I am. I see things dimly. I see things through a sinful nature and a sinful perspective but God is perfect. He is holy. The past 13 years, uh, as a parent, I've had the opportunity over and over again to build stuff. We've built furniture from 
cribs to beds to stuff like that. We've, we've built toys. We've built Legos. And that's just a blessing, isn't it, dads? Uh, I'm sure moms do it too, but that's just a blessing. And here's the thing. It doesn't matter if it's furniture. It doesn't matter if it's toys. It doesn't matter if it's Legos. It all comes typically in a box um, because that's the way I know how to build stuff. It has to come in a box, you know, some assembly required. And so you take it out of the box. You have all these wonderful pieces, all these things that are lettered with A's and 1's and A1's and B1's, and they're all supposed to go together in a certain way. And in that box, there's a beautiful piece of paper known as instructions. Now, I will confess openly right now that I've got things out of boxes, whether it's toys or furniture, and I've put them together thinking I know what I'm doing to only find out I've put together wrong. Would anybody else be willing to confess you've put something together wrong in your life at least once? All right. And we have instructions, don't we? But we know how to do it. This is what sin does is God gives us his instructions to life, and we go out in life, we take life out of the box, and we say, well, I've got this. I know how to do this. And so we go about, we find ourselves in messes. I've gotten such a mess that I've put a bookshelf, and you would think a bookshelf of all things is the easiest thing to put together out of a box. I've put it together to only find out I have to take it completely apart because I put A where B is supposed to be, and I put this little screw where it's supposed to be on the top, but now it's on the bottom, and I've had to take it completely apart because I didn't use the instructions or I misread the instructions and I didn't see the whole story. That's what sin does. Sin makes us think that we understand it all, we can see it all, we can comprehend it all, we can do it all. We don't need any help. And we find ourselves in a mess and have to redo things and God having to correct and rebuke us. Let's just all confess here right now. We've all messed up and trying to put something together. Something that looked very simple with the picture. Our sovereign God created the universe and all of creation with all of its mathematical equations and laws of physics, and He did it perfectly with no flaws. Let's just come to a point in our obedience that He probably has a leg up on us on intelligence. So obedience says, okay, I'm going to trust you. And trusting doesn't mean I have to understand it. It doesn't even mean I have to like it. It just means I'm going to trust you because your ways are far beyond my ways. Obedience is not about seeing the whole picture. Obedience is about relying upon the one who does see the whole picture. Joshua didn't see the whole picture. He had very limited information. He had tunnel vision. And that's what our sinful nature does for us. It gives us tunnel vision. Second thing we see is that sin is a disease that spreads if it's not dealt with. I read chapter 7. I read it over and over again. And, and I understand what happens and how it plays out. But I still read that and say, man, that is just not fair. That is not fair that this massive group of people get blamed for one man's sinful act. But if you read through the story and you read over, you see that the entire group of people was, were impacted by this one man's sinful act. We need to understand our sin is not just our problem. It is a holistic problem. Holistic, W-H-O-L-I-S-T-I-C, for our holistic journey. 
H-O-L-I-S-T-I-C. Sin is a holistic problem for our holistic journey. It is a corporate issue for our journey into holiness. Paul told the believers in Corinth and in Galatia to beware of the sin problem because of our individual disobedience will impact our corporate obedience. And we see how this plays out in kids' lives, and we see how this plays out in, in adult lives. Well, if they can do it, what? I can do it. If they can get away with it, what? I can get away with it. And so sin begins to, to spread because it is a virus, it is a plague. And we see this in church. And I don't know where everybody is right now, but this isn't, I'm not picking on anybody, but this is how we see this in church, that a sinful act impacts the whole church body. When one person or one family decides that they're going to steal from God in the tithe, we think, well, you know, it's not that big a deal because it's not that much money. But the reality is, it's God's money, and you don't know the whole picture of what God's going to do with that. And so you steal what belongs to God, what is supposed to be devoted to God. Or when a child of God, when an individual who says, this is where God wants me to be, decides that they're not going to get plugged into any aspect of ministry within that body. You take something that is supposed to be devoted to God and given to God in your life because it's been bought with a price and you withhold it, you steal it, and it impacts the way the church functions as a whole body. And those are just sinful acts. To not be plugged into church is a sinful act. To not give a tithe is a sinful act. And we can expect consequences for our sin. We see here in chapter 7, when we steal things that belong to God, bad things happen. And it's not, here's, here's where it really scares me. It's not just in Pastor Mike's life that bad things happen. It begins to pour out in the people's lives around me. The final thing we see is God's view of accountability. Chapter 7 is a beautiful picture of accountability. God called the entire nation to be held accountable for one man's action. And we may want to point the finger like Joshua did in this moment and pointing at God. And we may want to blame, we may want to question, but did you notice when God finally speaks, it doesn't matter Joshua's lack of understanding, it doesn't matter his blame or his questions, that did not negate God's holiness. God spoke and it called Joshua to immediate attention. And God called the entire nation to be accountable. Here's the beauty of the church that I didn't learn until I got a little bit older, well, a lot older. We need each other. I need you and you need me. This church is not relying upon Pastor Mike or any of the elders or deacons or any of our or leaders over ministry. His church is relying upon on us all working together. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 3 wrote, Take care, brothers. That word brothers in the New Testament is referring to believers. Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you an evil, 
unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. How do we counter that? But, there's a good but right there. There's a plan of attack. Exhort one another daily, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You see what sin does? It leads to a hard heart. You know who else had a hard heart? Pharaoh in Egypt. And so the Bible says that we need each other so sin doesn't lead us into a deceitfulness of a hard heart. We have a limited perspective. We begin to blame everybody else for what's going on in our life. And we don't turn to God and seek His guidance and His will because sin has begun to corrupt us. And it not only impacts us, it will impact everyone in our life because they will feel the blunt of our sinful, hard heart. We will become bitter, we will become angry, and we will just give up. Paul David Tripp writes in his book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. He says, The writer of Hebrews directs us to a doctrine of indwelling sin. On the cross and in the resurrection, Christ broke the power of sin over us. But this process will continue until we are sin-free. But while sin remains, we must remember that sin is deceitful. Sin blinds. And guess who gets blinded first? Me. Christ captures this truth in Matthew 7. He says we see a speck of dust in our neighbor's eyes, but we are oblivious to a huge piece of lumber sticking out of our own. And since each of us still has sin remaining in us, we will have pockets of spiritual blindness. The reality of spiritual blindness has an important implication for the Christian community. I need you in order to really see and know myself. Otherwise, I will listen to my own arguments, I will believe my own lies, and I will buy into my own delusions. If I'm going to see myself clearly, I need you to hold the mirror of God's Word in front of me. We need each other. Because if we don't, we will crawl into our sinful nature and we will become blinded. We will think, we've got this. Got it all figured out and we will lead down into a road that the Pharisees had of self-righteousness. I don't know what their problem is. We need each other. We We gather together and form the body of Christ. We, when we gather in the name of Jesus Christ, the promises of God's word is that his presence dwells in our midst. We, when we gather in unity and love, we show the world that we actually belong to Jesus. When we gather together and open up God's Word to hear His voice, it isn't just about Pastor Mike speaking. It is about we coming together to sharpen each other in the faith. I need you. You need me. We need each other to strengthen, and this comes through accountability. Get this, because this blew my mind this week. We are instruments of righteousness, which God uses to transform each other into the whole person that God has called us to be. 
You are an instrument of righteousness that God is called to Harvest Hill to transform other believers into the whole person that God has called them to be. And they are the same for you. So church isn't about getting here at 1030 and checking out whenever a pastor says amen. Church is about coming here and being transformed by God through the work of God's people. You are important not only to God, but you're important to everyone who is here who is called upon His name. That's a lesson from chapter 7. What if you're here this morning and you're not a child of God? What if you're here this morning and you've not called on Jesus Christ? Well, the Bible says that you are not the whole person that God created you to be, and you are not holy. You are separated. You are cut off from the promises and the presence of God. The Bible tells us, beginning in Genesis, that God created each and every individual to be in a relationship with Him. The issue, as we've talked about already, is sin. Sin cuts us off from that relationship. It cuts us off from the presence of God. It cuts us off from the promise of being with God in heaven and eternity forever. And so what do we do since we have a sin problem? We try to fix it ourselves. We try to do good things, try to go to church enough, read our Bible enough. We try to work out our own righteousness. But if we understand God's holiness and His sovereignty, we understand I can't work out my righteousness. I can't work out my holiness. So I can only turn to God. And that's why God sent Jesus Christ. Jesus came and lived a life you and I couldn't. He died a death you and I couldn't. And He rose again like you and I can't. And if we place our faith in Jesus Christ's death and resurrection, the Bible says that we will be saved. Our sins will be forgiven. And we will become a child of God. And this is a gift God gives to anyone and everyone who's willing to accept it. You may be here this morning and you've yet to begin a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And this is your first step in obedience. I'm going to invite you to come down and say, Pastor Mike, I want to be saved. I want Jesus to be my Lord and Savior. We'll pray together. We'll celebrate together. You may be here and there's been something that, that you know that God's been trying to cut out of your life to devote that thing to destruction, but you keep hanging on to it. And the Spirit is revealed it's not just impacting you, it's impacting your family and impacting those you love dearest. And maybe you just need to come before the Father in His mercy and His grace and repent of those things. God gives forgiveness. But I know God is good and I know He's calling us to something greater and something that we can't quite see yet. Sometimes it gets a little uncomfortable. So now it's time to respond and ask Jackson to come up. He's going to lead us in a song. I'm going to be standing here if you need someone to pray with or you just want to come and kneel before the Father. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your love, your grace, and your mercy. Lord, thank you that your word shows over and over again just the weight and the cost of sin and the consequences of sin. Lord, forgive us for making it such a little thing at times. Father, you're calling us to holiness. You're calling us to something better than what we know in this moment. So, Father, give us a heart and desire to trust you. I thank you that you're loving. I thank you that you're faithful. Pray for those here this morning who need you as your Lord and Savior, and they know it. Father, your spirit would not let them stay where they are, but they would walk down the aisle and they would let it be known they want to be saved, they want to be forgiven, and they would accept your Son as their Lord and Savior. I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ and the great mighty work you're doing in all of our lives, for those who are struggling in the faith, for those who are, are struggling with a sin, for those who have spent a week pointing the finger at you instead of evalu- evaluating their own life. We come before your holiness, we come before your mercy. 
thank you for drawing us to this place. You do the work that only you can do. But Lord, in this time, let us not just be hearers of your word, but doers. Forgive me if I've gotten in your way at any point in time. Pray that in this moment, you and you alone be glorified. Pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand. I invite you to come.